Now it is my pleasure to introduce our guest preacher this morning. He is a graduate of Liberty University. He has attended Biblical Theological Seminary. He served as a youth pastor in Westchester, PA. He currently is the lead pastor at Living Hope Community Church in Dublin. Um, and they have a, a second location in Doylestown. Uh, so it is my pleasure to introduce to our preacher today, Eugene Miller. Please come and share God's word. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here. It's such a privilege to be with you and to worship with you. I came to Living Hope 25 years ago. I was a youth pastor, determined to be a youth pastor the rest of my life. I liked uh, skiing and whitewater rafting trips and all that kind of fun stuff. And, um, but when I came 25 years ago, I was at Biblical Seminary, and uh, John Niederhaus was the pastor here. And uh, there was something called the Bucksmont um, uh, Coalition for Evangelism and Outreach, and there was a bunch of other words in there, maybe. Um, and so I think there was John Guest was brought into the area, and so Lighty's Church was a part of a, um, a great effort to reach a community for Christ, and so I knew of Lighty's at the time and came um, to prayer meetings and different functions here. And so it's... Uh, great privilege to be here today and to bring God's Word and to uh, look at God's Word, uh, do a Bible study really with you in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, and uh, I was at Judgment House a year ago, and so it's kind of neat to be a part of some other things. And also, uh, a couple people asked me, is this the year of Nativity at Living Hope? Uh, we will be doing Nativity. It'll be the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th. You can come anytime. You don't have to sign up. You just show up and be there. The other strange thing, uh, I'm a little stiff, you may not notice, but uh, I'm wearing a little back brace. On Saturday, a week ago, um, I do a lot of dirt bikes and uh, surfing, a lot of adventure sports, and uh, I was just walking down the steps in my socks. <laughs> so I have no cool story. And I slipped and uh, fell down half a flight of steps and broke my back in like five places. And as a Wednesday, I could stand for 10 minutes. So I called a couple of guys here, Francis and, uh, and Joe, and said, uh, uh, we may need backup here, because <laughs> my back is down. I didn't even, I just didn't, you catch that back up, back down. Um, so uh, I brought my good friend Scott Passerini, uh, who we do motocross ministry together with, and uh, we kind of promised in 2024 we would break no bones together because we both broken bones in dirt bikes. Um, but this has nothing to do with dirt bikes. I just slipped on the steps in my socks. So, um, but on Wednesday I said, hey, Scott, you might have to preach this sermon or at least preach half of it if I bail halfway through. Um, but I feel uh, miraculously, uh, as the week's gone on for that, um, I'm standing and walking around, so uh, praise the Lord for that. I don't want you to be distracted by it, but if I kind of walk stiffly, and, uh, but I'm constrained here. I, I just have a little pulpit at my place. Hey, this is about the Word. I just wanted to kind of share, get that out of the way. Um, 
Uh, one other thing that does have to do with this message is I grew up in a little country church, 180 at Christmas time, people, and uh, maybe we, we grew to 180 at Christmas time. And in that little church, it's a very evangelistic church, very much an outreach church, um, but we didn't reach a lot of people. It didn't seem like it. It was just mostly us. We all sat in the same pew every Sunday. You're, you're probably not like that, right? Um, but um, we sat in the fifth row, and uh, if you go to that church, they've since changed out the seats there. Uh, but there was teeth marks because I was always so bored. Um, but I used to hang my teeth off the front uh, of the row in front of me. And, um, but the only thing I really picked up on, on was is you need to get saved so that when you go to heaven, you will know what to say. So uh, there was a question you're asked. When you get to heaven, what will you say? And that was like the evangelistic question. When you get to heaven, what will you say? And so you got to answer that. When I was a kid, I prayed to prayer. And I asked Jesus in my heart. And then you would basically be able to kind of like uh, put that contract that you made with Jesus away somewhere. Put it in a safe place. And then when you die, you will be able to pull it out and say, I prayed a prayer. I, I prayed the prayer when I was, it was, it happened on a Monday. Jesus saved me. We, we sang a song. And it happened on a Monday. Maybe you didn't sing that here. Nobody is looking at me like we sang that song. It happened on a Tuesday. Jesus saved me. And you would stand up on the day you got saved. And last part of the song was it happened on some day. Jesus saved me because some people couldn't remember what day they got saved. And I remember thinking they're probably not saved because they don't know what day they got saved on. I know what day I got saved on. I walked an aisle that day. That's kind of how it was. But I didn't really think about that getting saved from a biblical sense was not about what you're going to do when you die. It was for today. It was eternal life. It was not about dying and going to heaven. The biblical sense of being saved is for a deep relationship with Jesus that begins the moment you're saved. And when you look at Ephesians, and you just heard it read, when you look at the text here, Paul has a prayer for the Ephesian church, a church prayer for all of us that is not My prayer is that when you die, you'll go to heaven. His prayer for us is for a deep relationship with Jesus in the context of a relationship with one another. It's ultimately about relationships. It's what the whole thing is about. Not a future and personal salvation. You get that future and personal? It's about when you die, you'll go to heaven, and it's about me. And you got to go tell individuals, when you die, where you're going to go. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's what I kind of thought too. Well, let's take a look at the text, right? Let's not belabor too long in this opening. Let's get right to it. So we're going to look at three parts of the prayer that you just heard. Three parts of the prayer that you just heard. And they all come with a power for something. A power for something. And so you see that right away, for this reason, he starts off by introducing this prayer. Uh, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, or my bended knee, or I kneel before the Father. I bow my knees. Now, just a comment on that. It's very typical in the Old Testament as they stood before God for prayer. And Paul here, um, possibly in prison, is saying, I'm kneeling I'm falling prostrate before God. I'm kneeling before the Father. And he's saying, from every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
And one other thing as we introduce before we get to the first part of the prayer that he's praying for us, he's praying to the Father, and he's going to say, in the name of the Spirit, or through the Spirit, that you might have Christ dwelling in your hearts. He's going to have Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit here. He has the whole Trinity involved in just the opening of his prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees. Now, we have to also ask the question is, why does he say for this reason? It's one of those therefores. And what do you do with a therefore? You say, what's it there for? Thank you, yes. You say, what is it there for? Well, he's already said that in verse 1. I just noticed that, Joe, you said you started in verse 1, right? It sounded like you started in verse 1. Because it says the same thing in verse 1, doesn't it? If you've got a Bible or you're electronic, are you electronic? You're, you know, you're sliding up and down or you're, maybe you're flipping. You've got the sound of paper there. Um, verse 1 says, for this reason, I, Paul. It looks like he's dictating this because this is what we got as one long sentence here. Paul went to school. He's a, good, um, he's a good guy in Greek. He writes good Greek. But he looks like he's dictating it because he started, for this reason, I, Paul, for the sake of the Gentiles. Oh, I want to say something about the Gentiles. Verses 1 to 13. And then he goes, where was I? And the guy goes, you were saying, for this reason, I kneel. Oh, yeah. Thank you. For this reason, verse 14. So what is for this reason? You have to go back to the chapter before. So what is going on in the chapter before? He's been talking about a building, a structure, a structure that's being built up, which we'll get to in the second part of the that there's this building that's being built up, Jews and Gentiles, the first time this ever could have been conceived of. Well, it's actually been mentioned throughout the whole Old Testament that Gentiles will be brought in but it seems to be a mystery that now is being fleshed out, especially in Ephesus, a church with Jews and Gentiles, that each of you is like a stone, that the temple is no longer a place on the earth with physical stones, the holy of holies, where God dwells with his spirit next to a box called the Ark of the Covenant. But the holy temple is actually the people are the stones and he dwells among his people, and he dwells within his people. And he says, for this reason, because he's dwelling among you, and you are the stones, the lit stones. Could you imagine what a lit stone temple would look like if you were each the stones of a temple that were all lit with the fire of, of God? He uses this analogy when he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden in Matthew chapter 5. And he says, you don't light a lamp and put a bushel basket over it. You actually light a lamp and, and let it shine. And you're a city on a hill. The way Jerusalem was a giant hill. And on top of Jerusalem was the temple. And the church, not the physical building, but the church is always conceived of as the people. You are the individual stones. And you're lit individually by Christ who dwells within you, which is what his first prayer is. Look at it. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Then here's the prayer. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the first thing he prays for. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's kind of interesting if you think about it. He's writing to believers that already have Christ dwelling in them, right? Once you come to know Christ, Christ is already dwelling in you. To know Christ, to be saved is to know Christ. What is this prayer? Well, picking up on this, so Christ would dwell in you deeply, that you would have the, the reality of this knowledge of Christ. It's almost like his prayers against my reality that I was thinking about. A future and personal salvation mentality. He's praying that you would individualistic about your salvation as futuristic and individualistic. That your salvation would be right now deep and personal and relational. That Christ may dwell deeply among you. The word for dwell here has the word house in the middle of it. The home, home in the middle of it. That Christ may home with you. Christ may be at home among you. The Germans have a phrase. My wife and I went on sabbatical and we were in Germany. It gives us a warm feeling when we say that. We were just there last year for the Christmas markets, and they, uh, it was wonderful. I could get lost and forget where I am in the sermon, so I'll keep moving. And so we met somebody, and uh, she says, I'm from Berlin, and the rest of the country thinks our accent is silly. You have to kind of be in a country to realize there's accents. When you come to America, we, we can tell where you're from by the way you talk, right? Oh, you're from the South. Sounds like you're from, like, New England or something. Oh, we know that Minnesota accent, right? We know that, you know, well, they have accents in Germany. The sing song. But when I hear the, Ber- and the whatever, she said, but when I hear the, Ber- the uh, Berlin accent, it gives me Heimatgefühl. And I said, Heimatgefühl, that's a funny phrase. Heimat, she, she says, it means home feeling. Home feeling. Heimat is like home. And so I started seeing that phrase. It was like written on plaques. Heimat is not a place. Heimat is a feeling. It's a gefool. Heimat gefool. Home is not a place. It's a feeling. Christ is not for the future. Salvation is not for the future. Christ is meant to be at home in you today. Do you walk with Christ daily? Or are you just saying, oh, no, Christ, I, I prayed the prayer. I'm, I'm saved. I have Christ for when I die. I know I'm going to go to heaven someday because I was in a classroom in 1973 or last year or summer camp. You're missing the point of salvation if you think it's just for the future. Look at Paul's prayer. He says that you, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that Christ may be at home among you together, actually. The problem with the English language is that you is not you alone. It's used guys. We're close enough to Jersey to say used guys. Or maybe that's a Philly thing. 
Use guys. That Christ may dwell in your, you all's, y'all's hearts, they say in the South. Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts. Yunes. That may be a Baltimore thing, I don't know. They say Yunes in Baltimore. Maybe that's Pittsburgh, I think. You're supposed to be together. The New Testament did not envision when Christ looked at Jesus. Sorry, when Christ looked at Peter and said, on this rock I'm going to build my church. And you're going to meet for, listen Peter, you're going to meet in the future for one hour. And half of it's going to be preaching, and then half of it's going to be music, and they're going to have some announcements, and they're going to pull into the parking lot, and they're going to go home. That's my vision, Peter. Go do that. Is that what they did? What do you see in Acts? The closest we can get to the vision of what Jesus had. They met together daily in each other's homes. They met together in the temple courts. They met together all the time. They shared what they had with one another. Christ dwelt among them. That's his first prayer. That Christ may dwell, be at home among you. Is Christ at home among you? Are you at home with Christ? Devotions in the morning is not just did you read some scripture and learn something. That is not the purpose of devotions. Purpose of, look at the word, devotion. Did you devote time to be with Christ? Did you devote time to be with Jesus? If you read one verse and dwelt on one verse alone, if you read the same chapter every day for a year and devoted time with Christ, that would be devotions. If you just read through the Bible, you would be like the Pharisees who knew the Scripture better than anyone alive today, maybe. They memorized it. But John 5, 39 says, you study the Scriptures, Jesus says to the Pharisees, looking for the Messiah, but don't recognize him standing in front of you. Isn't that horrible? Study the scriptures, but never coming to the knowledge of the Messiah. No devotion. That's the first one. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. But he says it has to be power through the Spirit. You can't do this to yourself. It has to be spirit done. So don't just try harder. Ask God, Jesus, dwell in my heart. And if you don't know Christ, it's not going to be about asking uh, or doing a lot of stuff. It's going to be asking, God, please, come into my heart. You died on the cross for me. You took my sins. Sometimes my wife and I say, you know what, you need to say the sinner's prayer every day in your life. Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Thank you for dying for me. I believe in you. I choose to follow you to time. That's what's nice about this confession time that we just had. Let's keep moving. It might even be appropriate for somebody to say, keep moving, because we got a lot to do. Second one, um, the power to grasp the depth and height of God's something. We'll have to look at it together to say, why did he say God something? Here's how it reads. And there's a couple translations make choices here. The end of 17 says that you being rooted 
and grounded or rooted and established in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what the breadth and length and height and depth of what? What's the subject or the object? What's the object of that sentence? It doesn't say. Paul doesn't give an object. So the NIV says, supplies an object because love is on both sides of it. Uh, the Greek often leaves out the before, the uh, subject or the object, and brings it from the before. So when it says, wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ, it doesn't actually say submit. It says, wives, to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. It leaves it out because it just said it in the verse before. It doesn't need to be repeated. So could that be what's happening here? That love was in the verse before, so when it says that you may have power with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, because love of Christ is before and after this. So maybe that's what is the four-dimensional thing that Paul is praying that you would grasp. And others have suggested that it is God's wisdom, because just earlier in chapter 3, only a couple verses earlier, in verse 10, that you might, through the church, God who created all things, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Whoa! 3.10 is one of the most profound verses in the New Testament, I think. God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's one to dwell on for the week. Did you catch that? It's not part of the message, I know. It's just a little extra. But the manifold wisdom of God, it might just have to do with what we're talking about, though. The manifold wisdom of God is like a multi-sided, manifold means multi-sided Wisdom of God, like a multi-sided diamond. Every way you turn it, it looks different. The multi-sided wisdom of God is being made known to who, according to 310? The visible and invisible world. Heavenly places. Places. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He uses the same language in chapters to talk about the princes and demons in the invisible world. Here, it's just the, not necessarily evil ones. It's the angels and the demons are being blown away by God's wisdom, by what he's doing in the church. So maybe wisdom is what he's picking up on here. But here's what he wants. Here's what his prayer is. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend the nature of God. The four-dimensional nature of God. Well, let's, let's take a step back first before we figure that out. Because he wants us to know that. His prayer is that you would have power to grasp, because we've got power from before. It's, it's one whole sentence. Power being rooted and established. Let me just hit rooted and established so we can at least set up what he's saying this prayer for us is. Rooted and established. The Greek word rooted means rooted in English. Isn't that profound? I like that too. Rooted means rooted. 
Um, like if you're growing stuff, it means you're deep down. You've got roots. Jesus kind of gives these kind of stories that when you are build your house on the sand or you build your house on rock, rooted and established means you established means you have laid the, the, the foundation deep into the rock, not just on the sand. You've dug out the sand and you found the rock and you started building down there. Psalm 1 says, there's a tree planted by rivers of water. You know when they do um, little tests on your property, they dig a hole. And they, you ever think about how deep, see how deep the water is? You ever think about how deep water is under a stream? Like if you dug a hole, how deep does water go under a stream? I don't know, that's just a thought. How deep does the water go under a stream? Uh, in Phoenix, they have trees uh, by the street, and they're so limited in their water, they only water them a little bit because they're, they're limited. So the street trees sometimes just blow over because the roots only grow out like this. They don't go down. There's no water deep. There's no inspiration to go deep. Shallow-rooted Christians don't go deep. Paul wants us to be deeply rooted in our faith. And that comes by Christ dwelling among us. Knowing with Christ, <clears throat> being deeply rooted in our relationship with Christ <clears throat> and one another. It comes out of what was just said before. That we who are deeply rooted in Christ and with one another, being rooted and grounded in love, it comes out of before, in the chapter before, he says, because there is a temple that is being built up among you, being deeply rooted in his word that is driving us together and grounded, and he says it really right here, being rooted and grounded what? In what? What's the text say? What are you deeply and grounded in? In love. It's very interesting. Not in truth. You're rooted and grounded in love. This is Paul's prayer. It's not mine. It's Paul's prayer. Being rooted and grounded in love may have power together with the Lord's people. All the Lord's people. He wants us to grow together. Not individualistic. That's kind of an American thing. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Get yourself going. It's got to be used guys and y'all. May have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp. Grasp is used a number of times in the New Testament. John uses a similar word when he says that the light came into the world and the darkness could not grasp it, could not comprehend it, could not get its arms around it. We're prehensile. You know what that is? Probably not, because it's a boring word. I think it's a boring word. Dogs are not prehensile. They have no thumbs. Dog, go get the paper. I was going to get the paper, but I have no thumbs. So he grabs it with his mouth, right? So to be prehensile means we can grab something. I can grab this thing because I have a thumb. If you had no thumbs, you, you, you got the point? Grasp. In order to grasp something, you, you need to be able to hold on to it. You grasp with your mind, you change the word prehend, prehensile, prehend, comprehend, apprehend. You apprehend a thief. 
apprehend. You see the word house used? Some of you is like, hey, this is Thanksgiving weekend. You're getting too close to English class. <laughs> Prehend. You grab onto something. He wants our brains to prehend, to comprehend, to grasp. Comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth, length, height, and depth? There's four dimensions there. Most everything in, in this world is three-dimensional, but here's a fourth. Breadth, length, height, and depth. And we have no subject. And so we're left with something deep. And here's what one commentator says, Darryl, that it looks incomplete. As the odd part of the verse is that it looks incomplete to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of what, he says. There is no completion to the idea, and numerous single candidates abound. Is it love? Is it wisdom? Is it power? Or just the raw vastness of it all? Most opt for the first, love. Because of the previous mention of love, it certainly is included. However, it may be that making this choice gets too specific. One could rightly suspect that the writer has written exactly what he intended here. It is the vastness of God's program in all of its depth. The boundless vastness of salvation pictured in many dimensions and the things tied to it that are being praised here. Did you get that? One rightly suspects, I'll read it again, just the last part. One rightly suspects that the writer has written exactly what he intended. It is the vastness of God's program in all of its depth. The boundless vastness of salvation pictured in many dimensions and the things tied to it. That is being praised here. The manifold wisdom of God, may you grasp. His eternal purposes, may you grasp. That's his prayer for us. There's a third prayer here. Usually I have a clock on the back of the wall at my place. And then a guy going, come on, let's go. The music guy does that for me. I have no clock. Okay. Now I saw one. Thirdly, and we'll move a little faster. Power to know this love filled with the fullness of God. Power. The third one is power to to know this love. And I think we'll try to put all this together here. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is his third part of his prayer. The power to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This has two mind-blowing things, as if this chapter didn't have enough I think you could just dwell on this chapter for a year. And I've talked to many people that have done this. Not necessarily this chapter, but spent a year just reading one chapter. He says, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Beyond knowledge is another way of putting it. A love that is beyond knowledge. You might grasp that to say, you know, how well do you know your wife? Well, I mean, I, I could list a whole bunch of stuff, but, you know, we've been married for more than a lot of years. <laughs> you know, sometimes like, whoa, we've been married a lot of years now. I still feel like a very young couple. But in a lot of ways, our love surpasses knowledge. I mean, you, it's not just about what we know. It's just not a list of 
details and, and things and kids and then our kids have kids. It's, and what places we've been, it's a lot of stuff that we just, I don't know. I don't know. We just know each other for a long time. Very deep, very deep. And so to know Christ isn't just a list of things. Doctrine is, is important because it keeps you straight. It's really important. Knowing the Word of God, you grow, as you grow in your relationship with Christ, it's how you learn more about Him. If I didn't know my wife's birthday, and if I didn't know her name, and, and if I didn't know where she came from, and, and all those things, it, you know, you need to know the Word. You need to know the truth of the Word. You need to know the deep things about the Word. They're important. But they have to lead you to a deeper relationship with Christ. Otherwise, you're headed down the path of the Pharisees. His prayer here is that you would know a love that is beyond knowledge. That's his prayer. Beyond knowledge. Huper balo usan. Anybody like Greek? Three people. Yeah, I saw your hand. Hyper throne is the I word. Balo is the throw. Like, so far beyond. That's his prayer. That you would know a love. This goes back to the whole idea of Christ being at home in your hearts. How well do you know Christ? Are you on fire for Christ? Are you alive in your relationship with him? Are you just going through the motions? Are you just about church? Church is boring. I'll just tell you, church is boring. Church is boring. Church is boring. Who wants church, right? Amen. There's a young guy. Amen. Where's your teeth marks on the pew? Church is boring. Who wants church? I don't want church. I don't even want to be a part of church. Church is boring. Christ, on the other hand, is dynamic and deep and powerful and alive. That's what we ought to be about. And if your church isn't about Christ, then it's dying and it's on its way to being gone. If you're just going to go through the motions and keep up the past and be about what we were, and if you remember the past and you want to be about going through the motions, you won't have a passionate light for the community and for the generations to come. They need Christ. They need this prayer. This needs to be our prayer. If you've been in the church for years, pray this prayer for these people. My wife and I were sitting in a restaurant with our grandkids getting pancakes. We like pancakes with faces on it and all that fun stuff. Breakfast late in the morning with the grandkids. And over at the table over here was a young couple. Beautiful. She had dark hair, perfectly straight. Beautiful face. Legs crossed under the table bumping his leg. He had a really nice shirt on with a winter coat. A different state. Visiting our kids. It was like a Hallmark movie. I mean, they were just perfect couple. He was not quite shaven, you know? He had that kind of perfect beard thing going on. And I thought, man, look at this couple. They are, like, perfect. You could see that they were looking 
the way they were looking at each other, they weren't married. <laughs> and you can look, see the way they were looking at each other that they wanted to be married. It was like a Hallmark movie. There's her legs crossed, bumping his knee or his leg. And I've been in the ministry for too long to know the statistics of what I was watching. They're probably going to be married in the next year, probably just about to get engaged, just like a Hallmark movie. They'll have a beautiful wedding. Lots of girls on this side, lots of guys on that side. It's going to be beautiful. And they're going to be perfect. She's going to pursue her career. He's going to pursue his. And slowly, they're going to drift apart from one another. And they're going to be like passing shadows for a couple years. They're not going to be getting along very well. He's got his job. They keep working it out. They argue more and more. And then they have a child thinking this will help get our marriage together. And it gets worse. They see each other less. She's much more involved in the child, but she's stressed because she's going to work all the time. They have a second child, hoping that might bring it together, but now it's worse. And all this is flashing through my mind while she's still kicking his leg gently under the table. Eventually, they can't talk at all. They only talk through text. And she goes and sees a lawyer. And then they have hateful things that they text back and forth, and they have a bitter, bitter relationship. And they have to go to the courts to decide how they're going to see their kids. And now the only thing they share is their kids. And they have to get pictures taken separately at ball games because they're antagonistic. Isn't that the American story? Isn't that re the real American story? And some of you have gone through that. Maybe that was your parents. Maybe that's what you've been through. Maybe you're on some part of that cycle. That is what is going on, right? Around us, among us, isn't it? I mean, to be honest, that is the world among us. And here's Paul's prayer. That we would know a love that's so deep and powerful and so life-changing. Meanwhile, the world is falling apart. Watching Hallmark movies all Christmas long not realizing it won't change your life. The only thing that's going to change anyone's life is a relationship with Christ. That's the only hope for the world today. And we're inside of our buildings doing church. We've got to be here doing Christ because the world is so broken. There's people are heading in the same path. They're so connected to the world, they're going the same way. They need a church that's for real, that has got real Christ. Look at the last verse. Now to him who is able, to, last two verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine, according to the power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know what? I sometimes can't imagine how we're supposed to minister to families that are so broken in our community. Wealthy families and poor families. Broken families and not yet broken. I can't even imagine. Most of us pray prayers that we pre-imagine. Is that how you pray? Here, Jesus is how I've already imagined it, and here's what I'd like you to do. But sometimes you're not even, you can't even imagine. 
Jesus, my kids are so broken. Our relationship is so broken. My neighbor's lives are so broken. I don't even know how I could begin. But God wants us to be the bricks that are lit with his presence. He wants us to be the city on a hill that people could say, there is hope. There is hope. Young couple, what if they started at the beginning of their journey and they found a place, a city on a hill that was lit on fire? A hope, not for just the future, but a life on fire for Christ today. And they found their way here among real believers that were on fire. They found it was a safe place, not just the building, but the people. Maybe they found their way to your home first or one of your small groups. And before it got far down that path, they found hope in Christ. That is what we pray. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. This was Jesus' prayer. I came not for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for those who needed a shepherd. I came for the lost sheep to bring them home. That's his heart for us today, that we would know him deeply and that we would be a light to the world. That's Paul's prayer for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we look at this uh, text and we dwell on it today, so powerful. Church is not alive by the things we do. It's alive by your presence among us. When your presence is among us, it goes on and on and on past the hour because you are with us and our relationships are so deep. And then it, it overflows. Our cup overflows. And there's always room for another. There's always an empty seat for a young couple that needs the hope that's only found in Jesus. May we be that hope can only be found in Christ. Would you do above and beyond what we can imagine? And would it be for your glory through the church? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.